Well, I'm going to start out with a reminder again that we've been going through the book called The Story, which is pretty nearly a chronological uh, story of the Bible. And we have been going through, and I, I always want to define a couple of terms, for, especially for visitors that are here. God, in the book, it refers to God's upper story and the lower story. So that you understand when I use those in my message, you know what in the world I'm talking about. God's upper story, God's plan, God's perspective, God's character, and what it is he's trying to accomplish in the earth. That's his upper story. The lower story is what we experience here on earth. The lower story that God has given us. And, of course, the goal would be for our lower, lower story to always be in alignment with his upper story. But the reality is that doesn't happen all the time. So we're going to be looking at chapter 28 of the story today. The message, I titled the message simply, Called to be a Witness. Called to be a Witness. You know, I was doing some reading this morning. It was very spiritual. I got it out of the Huffington Post. Those of you that don't know, it's not real spiritual. But I was looking at a little study that talked about why it is people are so resistant to change. And the obvious answer is almost always fear, fear of the unknown. But it's not the only answer. A few weeks ago, I shared some things that we feel as a leadership in the church that God is really leading us to change, to make some changes in the way that we do church, the way that we train up our children, some changes that will be coming. Hopefully, we'll all embrace them, but I know that's not reality. Change. Another reason that it said that, that researchers have shown that why we resist change is, for whatever reason, we assume, there's, if it, maybe it's even subconscious, but we assume that if we've been doing something a certain way for any period of time, it must be a good way to do it. And they did some research that's really crazy on different things, and we've, they've discovered that the longer something has been done, or the older something is, there's this perception that that makes it even better. For example, they had people they, they had people look at this beautiful tree and they told them it was a 2,400-year-old tree. And then they pointed out the same tree to another group of people and told them it was only a 500-year-old tree. Guess which group thought it was the most impressive tree? Just because it was said to be older. You know, food... This food has been made this way. It's been a recipe that's been handed down from generation to generation. The original recipe is over 180 years old. Boy, did that taste good. Somebody threw together the recipe that day. And, of course, it didn't taste near as good, and it was the same exact recipe. We think this way somehow subconsciously. Just because something's old, it's the way it's supposed to be done. Well, if you read the book of Acts, if you've read chapter 28 of the story, we are at a place in the scripture where a major, major change is taking place. We're talking about a transitional time. Transition is one of those nicer words than change. We don't resist it quite as quickly. A major shift is taking place. It's just another way of saying change is coming. Now, I know in Hebrews 13, it says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. However, it also says in the scripture in Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. About the time I have discovered this, about the time that I think I've got God figured out, about the time I think I know his ways and how he's going to operate, I am in for a very, very big surprise and quite often some major disappointment and confusion because he doesn't do it the same way all the time. And in the book of Acts, it helps me to relate a little bit better to the religious people of the day that I so quickly judge because they were so hung up on their religion because everything was about to change in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see Jesus' earthly leadership being replaced by the apostles' leadership. We see the disciples going from hiding in a room, waiting for something that was promised, to becoming this bold group of men and women who would take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. They were changed dramatically. We go from the presence of Jesus walking on the earth, the presence of of Jesus being the representation of the triune, the trinity, here on earth, to the Holy Spirit being released in the earth. We go from the old covenant to the new covenant. We go from law to grace. We go from Israel being God's chosen, select, special people to it being opened up to all the Gentiles as well. We see it going from something like circumcision to baptism. Now I can go on and on with this list, and we might not even think too much of this list, but the reality is this changed everything. Everything was changed, and they had been doing it the same way for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Almost sounds like a church that says, what's wrong with the good old hymns? What's wrong with the good wooden pews? What's wrong with the old organ? Nothing is wrong with those things. But times change. Things change. Cultures change. And I've said this before, and it's a thought, it's a line that's burned into my brain right now is, you know what, if you don't change, you're going to be irrelevant. And if you don't like change, you're really not going to like being irrelevant. And I look at the scripture and I look at the story in the book of Acts and I think of what these people had to experience in terms of change. With all that change that's taking place, however, there's a couple things that don't change. God's character does not change. His plan does not change. His word does not change. He still, God, our Heavenly Father, still deeply, deeply, deeply desires to reach the world with reconciliation and with redemption. That is who He is. It's part of His character that doesn't change. And He has chosen to do this through this new community that's established in the book of Acts even though it wasn't referred to as the church until Antioch, but he's chosen to use this faith community empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish reconciliation and redemption that Christ purchased for us through his death and resurrection. When you read the book of Acts, there's a number of things, but three specific words really struck me. and, And as you go through, if you read it, you'll see how this These words or the theme that these represent are repeated over and over and over. First one is resurrection. The resurrection. The resurrection changed everything. 
It changed everything. It's what separates Christianity from all the other religions of the world. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he's alive, and he's coming back. So Luke writes about the resurrection over and over. He also talks and and mentions this phrase, the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord, the name of the Lord. You'll read it and you'll see it over and over and over. And what he's referencing there isn't just the name, like we think of a name, but what the name represents, his character, who he was, what he accomplished. The name of the Lord. And the third thing that he mentions over and over and over again is the Holy Spirit. You can't get away from it. If you read the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is throughout the book of Acts. It's amazing the way the church in recent history has ignored the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Think about that. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God on the earth today. And Jesus himself said, it's better that I leave so that the Holy Spirit comes. And before Jesus left, his last command to his disciples was this. Go and wait in Jerusalem until the power comes. And what he's saying is, you can't accomplish the mission that I'm going to leave you without the power. It's not in you humanly to accomplish what I'm going to ask you to do. So when we look at this, I need to review very briefly the story. In chapter 1, and we won't go through all 28 chapters. But in chapter 1, we get a picture that we have to understand. In Genesis chapter 1, we get a picture of God's upper story plan, His passion from His position, from His perspective. He created the lower story. He created the Garden of Eden. He created Adam and Eve. He created all that exists. Why? So he could come down from heaven and fellowship with us. He created, that was his passion, to fellowship, have relationship, have an intimacy with Adam and Eve. And that hasn't changed. The problem is, Adam and Eve didn't share his vision. And they sinned. One rule, they broke it. Because they broke it, they were removed from the Garden of Eden. They were removed from the Tree of Life that would allow them to live forever. And sin came. That relationship with God that was perfect had been broken. And then we see in chapters 2 through 21 in the book, The Story, that, well, really, the, the whole Bible, it doesn't stop at chapter 21, but the rest of the Bible, you could say it this way, the rest of the Bible unveils his plan and his purposes and his power to restore that unity, that fellowship. And in chapters 2 through 21, we see where God first creates the community of Israel. He calls them his people. He calls them apart to be a separate people. And this is the people he chooses to reveal himself to. And his purpose was to have a people that would stand out on the earth. That this group of people would be a people that everybody else on the earth, all the Gentile nations, would look at and say, Wow, they're different. They're blessed. 
They are unique. Their God surely is the God. And it would draw people to God. We see that over and over. Matter of fact, every story we see about Israel as God's chosen people really was pointing to Jesus. Pointing to the Messiah. And then in chapters 22 through 27, which we just completed, we see Jesus arriving on earth. We see him as God coming in the flesh to represent us before the Father. God the Son, Jesus. And he brings this message we call the gospel. As he's on the earth, as he's teaching, as he's performing signs and wonders, it's all really to just point people to the gospel. The reality that sin has to be dealt with. The Old Testament, all of the sacrificial worship they had done, all the killing of the animals, was all pointing to Jesus. And when he came, he came to deal with sin. Sin that had to be dealt with, and the cross was the solution. He had to go and die on that cross. He had to become sin on our behalf. He was the sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could be made. In the Old Testament, they they had what they called the guilt offering. Well, Jesus became that guilt offering. He took our guilt upon himself. So when we acknowledge that Jesus came as the Son of God, God in the flesh, when we acknowledge that, when we acknowledge that we have a sin problem, that we are sinners, And when we acknowledge that he became sin on our behalf, that he went to that cross and died for me, for you, it opens up the purpose of God's upper story plan to each one of us. When we acknowledge those things, we repent of our sin, we have this wonderful opportunity to have all of our sins forgiven once and for all. Every single one of us in here, if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, if we have acknowledged those things, your sins are forgiven. It shuts the door to the devil's lies that somehow you're guilty. There should be shame and condemnation. It it shuts the door to all that if we stand on the truth that my sins are forgiven. And it provides also the opportunity for you and I to be called children of God. And that's who we are. His children. All of that's there He died for every single human being on planet Earth. But until you accept that personally, receive it personally, you're excluding yourself from the forgiveness of sin and excluding yourself from the family of God. But it's a free gift. It's an offer. And Jesus came to fulfill that part of all God's requirements for his plan. And that brings us to chapter 28. Chapter 28, a new community is being formed. We now call it the church or the family of God. And a new mission is unveiled. And if you're not careful, we can miss the the significance and the importance of the mission. Jesus was way more concerned about the mission than he was about when he was coming back. The mission. I want to read in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1. 
Luke is writing this, and he says, In my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. The story picks up in chapter 28 here. Giving new information to the disciples. He was raised from the dead, and he remained on earth for 40 days meeting and teaching and giving some final instructions to the disciples. And you can imagine, in the natural anyway, if I knew I was only going to see these people for a few more days, I would share with them the most important things that I could come up with. Especially if I'm preparing them to carry on the mission that I started, that he made possible. Jesus opened the door, and now he's going to leave, and he's turning it over to the 12 disciples, the 120 disciples, and to you and me. I've said this before, but boy, that's one of those things that makes you go, what was he thinking? This most important mission of all kind, and he turned it over to human beings, and he expects us to carry it out. Knowing how full well how difficult it is, and that's why, the Holy Spirit is so critical in carrying out that mission. Notice in the scriptures that I just was reading to you a few things. One, they were talking about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. They were still trying to wrap their head around this kingdom thing. You know, Jesus was going to be their king and he got crucified. Now he's getting ready to leave and they're still trying to understand the kingdom of God. And then they asked this question. When he had coming back, well, they kind of worded it a little differently. They says, are you going to take your place now as king? And you notice he almost ignores their question by simply saying, that's up to God. It's up to the Father. He's just saying, don't even be concerned with that. You know, I was reading this last past week, too, that there's been at least 208 credible, I almost said credible, incredible would maybe be a better guesstimate as to when Jesus was coming back throughout history. And a lot of us here have lived through a few of those because they're kind of recent. People are saying, this is when he's coming back. People selling everything, why keep everything if he's coming back? He was going to come back in the year 2000. Uh, he's going to come back when the planets align a certain way. They predicted that Halley's Comet was coming. They predicted that correctly, but they predicted that Jesus was coming back with Halley's Comet. 
People get so distracted. And here's what the disciples are wondering. When are you coming back? And God says, Jesus says, it's none of your concern. But what he does do is tell them about the mission. You are to be my disciples. You are to be my witness, my witnesses. And he, knowing it's going to be difficult, he says, but wait in Jerusalem till the power comes, till the Holy Spirit comes. His ministry on earth is about to end, so it's up to you guys to take over, is what he's basically saying. And he gives these commands, and then he disappears up into the sky and into the clouds. And he's gone. I always try to put myself in the disciples' place and try to imagine, I, I can't do it. What would they be thinking? What would be happening? What are we supposed to wait for? What do we do now? Looking at each other and go, okay, guys, now what? Peter, where are you going to get us in trouble next? And they go to Jerusalem and they wait. Called to be a witness. I want to focus on that first. What does it mean to be called to be a witness? If you're like me or most of us, probably right, ago, right away go in our mind to some sort of evangelistic witnessing with handing out something or speaking. And while being a witness certainly includes that, it doesn't stop there. He calls them to be a witness, not to go witnessing. In other words, everything about you should be a witness to who I am. Yes, you should share. Yes, you should speak. Yes, you could give out tracts, whatever it is you feel called to do. But it doesn't stop there. He is including being a witness, being expressed in how we live. How do we live our lives? You ever thought or said something to the effect that, well, they know how to talk to talk, but they sure don't walk the walk. Christians are really, really guilty of that. We are called to be a witness. Our life, the way we live, should represent the characteristics and the character of God. You and I cannot proclaim that we are Christians and live like we did before we were Christians. There are some things we shouldn't do, and I'm not talking about getting legalistic here. What I'm talking about is becoming a transformed person by the power of the Holy Spirit. Turning away from those things. You know, what happens to my credibility or your credibility if you're walking around sharing the good news about Jesus and how much you love Jesus and, and then they watch you on Friday night or Saturday night at the parties you're at with them doing what they're doing? Frankly, what you say becomes meaningless to those people. Living in fear, continually living in fear, afraid of everything that's coming, afraid of tomorrow, afraid of what God's going to allow to happen next instead of walking by faith. The world's full of fear. They don't need us as Christians to be modeling fear for them. We're supposed to walk by faith, trusting in God. The way that we live our life matters to your witness. As I'm stepping on your toes, I want you to know my toes hurt too. The way we live, what we do, makes a difference. Not only the way we live, but how we treat others. 
That can be included in how we live, but the way that we treat others. How do we treat other people? Do we walk and represent the love of Christ? Boy, when you start looking at being a witness as including those different things, it can be really convicting. At least it is to me. We can share the good news. We're commanded to share the good news. But we're also to represent Him with the way we live and the way we treat other people. And Jesus knows and knew how hard that was going to be. That's why He stressed, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was, was coming down into our lower, lower story. Jesus was returning to God's upper story, being seated at the right hand of the Father. Every single new believer is being indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And we believe as a charismatic church that it opened the door to the opportunity to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. The indwelling, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power that we need, the guidance that we need to be successful in carrying out the mission, to be a disciple, to be a witness. The focus of our message really is going to be the way we live, not just what we speak. Change lives. That's what God's into. Changing our lives. You know, he changed my life. He changed most of your lives. The ones I know, I know he's changed your lives. But there's still stuff there, isn't there? There's still things in my life that need changing. There's still things I would guess in your life that need changing. And sadly, we know what they are most of the time. We just don't allow the Holy Spirit. I can't change on my own in a lot of ways, but the Holy Spirit can change me if I cooperate. And that's what God wants to do. So it's the message that's heard with our ears and seen with our eyes that will draw people to Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit, thankfully, is there with us every step of the way. And Jesus, in those last instructions, not only tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit, He kind of lays out a map for them. He says, in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the world. It's the same for us today. We have the same mission. It's kind of the same map. Right where you're at, right where you're planted, Be a disciple. Be a witness. And wherever God allows you and leads you and calls you to, go and be a witness even as to the uttermost parts of the earth. They go to to Jerusalem. They wait for 10 days. And the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, the Holy Spirit comes and transformation takes place. This band that had been scattered at the, the, the crucifixion, drawn back together as Jesus is walking the earth, now sitting in the upper room, 120 of them, wondering what's coming next. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes on the day we call Pentecost, and they're transformed, and we see the transformation immediately, and Peter takes his foot out of his mouth, and he preaches a sermon. And 3,000 people get saved. And the church begins. 3,000 people. What did the church look like in the book of Acts? 
I'm not going to go into a terrible lot of detail, but when we look at the books of Acts, well, I'm going to read first in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. It says this, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were being done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's what it looked like. Now, boy, is that a change from going to the synagogue? Is that a change from offering up animals and killing them and sprinkling their blood and doing all the stuff they were doing? What a change. What it really began to look like, history tells us that the typical group house church, if you would, at that time, probably had about 30 people in it max. Can you imagine? 3,000 people get saved. All of a sudden we need 100 churches, 100 house churches. A few days later, another 5,000 get saved. Can you imagine what was taking place in the city of Jerusalem? And God's favor was upon them. What were they doing? They were fellowshipping. A meal. Communion together. They became a family. We see them becoming a family. Relationships. Children of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Fellowship was a huge part of it. Prayer and praise. They were together praying. Praising God. Giving thanks. Preaching of the gospel. Digging deeper into the word as they had it. As they knew it. Can you imagine the change? All those Years of studying, now all of a sudden, this whole new aspect of God opens up to them. It says they they came and they were hearing the apostles' teaching. What were they teaching? They'd been teaching what Jesus had been teaching. Demonstrations of power, signs and wonders, confirming the word. Meeting each other's needs. You know, there's a slide, I don't know if it's up there yet, uh, that says... Your beliefs don't make you a better person. Your behavior does. Now, before you get all bent out of shape and start coming up with questions and confusing things, I'm going to just rephrase that once the way James did it. Faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. We can get into all kind of humanistic thinking with that comment that's on the screen. But the reality is, when we talk about belief in a biblical pattern, a biblical way, the biblical meaning of the word, it's more a verb. It's, I believe to the point I'm going to take action. And James is saying, you say you believe, but you don't do anything with what you believe. It's dead. That faith isn't real. It says here that people were together. They were reaching out. They were meeting needs. Whatever the needs were, they were reaching out. They were reaching out to the poor. They were reaching out to however had a need. And evangelism. You know, it's interesting when, when it talks about the Lord adding to their number daily many who were being saved. They had favor with all the people. Do you wonder what it was about this group of people that gave them favor with all the people? And I think that could have maybe been qualified a little bit by saying except the religious leaders or at least some of them. I believe what was so attractive to them was the message and the changed lives they were seeing. 
the same thing that would be attractive to people today. I got to share a quick testimony with you. I got a call this week from uh, Pastor Gus Booth. Gus is originally from Tracy. Some of you may know their family, Booth family. And he's a pastor up in War Road, Minnesota. And Gus was on his way to Iowa to pick up a new puppy with two of his daughters. And he stopped in Tracy. And he's visiting with someone who had spoken into his life when he was a wild teenager. And he was that. And he's talking to this woman who had, who had really made an impression on him, even though he didn't listen to everything she said back then. And, and finally he says to him, you know, what churches in the area would you say are doing something for the kingdom of God? And she named three churches. Two of them are Truebridge churches. One of them was Grace Life Church, Pastor Doug Wing. She knew the name of the church, knew the name of the pastor. Another one was Victory Christian Church, Pastor Mike Nelson. She knew the name of our church, knew my name as their pastor. And then you know what she said? She said, well, there was this guy named Monty Lyson. Yeah, that Monty. And she says, boy, has he got a changed life. He's actually one of the leaders in that church. And she says, but you know what? That's what that church does. They change the life of people. The church doesn't change it without the power of the Holy Spirit. We get that. But that's what we want to hear. Gus says, I had to call you, Mike, because he says, no, I know as a pastor, usually I'll hear nothing but the bad news. And I just want to encourage us as the church, people are watching you. And they're looking at you to see if you're different. They're watching me to see if I'm different. They're watching us to see if the words we say are important are really important in the way we live our lives. And they need to line up. Because our neighbors, the people we work with, they need to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And you're the people representing Jesus Christ to them. And you have the Holy Spirit empowering you to do it. We are to be the witnesses of the transforming power of God. And it doesn't matter where you're at in your walk, because we're not all in the same place. But are we being changed? Is the power of God transforming us step by step? Don't get discouraged when you mess up. I know that's hard not to do. Messing up is easy. Getting discouraged is easy. We just confess it and we go on. And trust that God is going to give us that second and third and 133rd chance to get it together and get it right. We need to be open on the doors of our lives to those around us so that they can see Christ and experience it for themselves. See the way that he's moving in each one of us so they desire that he would move in them. To offer care to people that we come across who need something with no expectation of anything in return. None. When we have an expectation of getting something in return, really, you know what, we're doing it out of selfishness or pride, right? We're just to meet people where they're at and be a blessing. You know, my understanding of the military, even though I've not ever been in it, was when a military leader, when a general gives a command, that command stands until he gives, gives a new command. 
Well, Jesus' last command in Acts 1, verse 8 was, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. That command still stands until he comes back. Let's pray. Father, our, our inadequacies are so obvious to the world and to ourselves most of the time that we should know that we can do nothing without you, without your spirit. Nothing of, of, of spiritual, eternal value without your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that you would help us to have sensitive ears, a sensitive heart, sensitive spirits, to, to hear and recognize your voice, and you would give us grace to respond in obedience to that voice. God, I pray that you would show us those areas of our lives where, that still need to be transformed in greater and greater ways, that those things that we need to walk away from, those things that we need to lay down at the foot of the cross and never go pick up again, that we can be a witnesses for you, that we can fulfill your calling on our lives, that we can do all that we can to fulfill your mission to spread the good news of Jesus to the uttermost parts of the world. Lord, I thank you that your love for us is unconditional and it's not dependent upon those works. But Lord, I thank you for allowing us to be a part of what you want to do. I thank you that we can, by your grace, by your mercy, by the power of your Holy Spirit, fulfill that mission you've called us to. I pray for each one of us, even this week, Lord, that we would be very sensitive to your leading, those divine appointments that might come across our path. That we would be listening to hear what it is you would like us to share, what you'd like us to do, who we might help, how we could minister. Lord, we pray these things that you'd receive all the glory and honor in it. And Lord, I pray now that you would bless our time of fellowship that will follow, bless the food and all those that prepared it for us, that it would nourish our bodies. And Lord, I pray that you would go before us this week, guiding our steps. In Jesus' name, amen.